Thank you, Seth, for a little double duty this morning. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to John chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, he just read from one of the blue ones. It should be in front of you. It'll be page 742 of it. That's where we're going to be today. I ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we get going, so let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for these people. God, thank you for what they, they mean to me. Thank you more for what they mean to you and, um, and how you express that to us on the cross and in every day. And so we just pray that as we open your word now, um, God, these are, these are your people. This is your time. This is your building. This is your everything. And so I just pray that you'd be the one who speaks today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Happy New Year uh, to all of you. Uh, I've, I don't know if you've made a New Year's resolution. I've never been a big fan of them. Um, now, I don't want to demotivate any of you who have, all right? And I don't want self-improvement is, a, is an idea that has some virtue of funneling the right way. But I just can't recall uh, a single resolution that I've ever made. Uh, I certainly can't recall any of them working. Um, for instance, let, this morning I was like, you know what? The Cubs won the World Series last year. This year I'm going to be nicer to Cardinals fans, Okay. And then I walked in and saw your faces. And I was like, this is impossible. I can't do this, right? It's just, it, it, resolutions always fail. There are a few uh, that on the internet this week that at least piqued my curiosity. One guy wrote that his resolution this year were to eat, was to eat donuts that were healthy for him. Now, I don't know about you, I'd like to track that, right? Keep, keep tabs on that guy and figure out if he, if he pulled that off because I'd be interested in knowing how. Another wrote that his, he was resolving this year to do less laundry and wear more deodorant, which seems efficient, Right, it saved some time. Jim Gaffigan, who's a comedian, he tweeted out that his resolution was to be less perfect in 2017. Now, for those of you with ADD, I'm going to give you a deep thought, and you can disappear for 20 minutes. Find out if that's impossible to do or very possible to do. Okay, and get back to me at the end. Okay. Now that one, you know, uh, has a good chance of success if you think of it the right way. But can we just take a moment, right, and ponder why New Year's resolutions are so often unsuccessful? Okay, can we just be honest about that? Sometimes it's because we choose things that simply aren't easy. If they're easy, we'd have already accomplished them. Um, but it's also because most often the power required to beat them, we try to find in ourselves. Right? So whether it's a habit that we want to break or a habit we want to try to start, a new mindset that we want to carry, or a different way of looking at things, most often we try to accomplish these things by our own power. And we are fickle, and we're limited, and we're selfish, and we cut corners, or else we wouldn't have to make resolutions. The reason that most resolutions fail is because the person trying to fix things is the same person who broke them. See, this is not unlike the same grave mistake that we make with God. Deep down, we all know we're all messed up. Deep down, all of us know that, that there's something wrong with our world. There's something wrong with us. We're not as we should be. Just look around. And so what we try to do is we, some of us try not to think about it. Or we try to drown out that feeling with vices or philosophies that, that wash this truth away or rebel against it. But all along, we know it's still there. We know it's still true. And so what others do, for as long as human existed, is we get very religious. We create these systems, right? Perform these ceremonies, right? Say these prayers. Do these chants. Do this act of service. Go to these services. Check off these boxes. That'll cover the guilt. But the problem is that the people who are trying to fix things are the same ones who broke everything. Which brings us, as always, to Jesus. The Jesus who made a perfect sinless creation. The Jesus who watched as we sinned and made a mess of it. And the Jesus who loved us too much to remain lost in that mess, but instead came for us to make everything right again. Because he knew, right? He knew the ones who broke everything could not fix it, but instead it would take a power and a love and a grace outside of and much greater than them. 
As a country just completed celebrating Christmas again, and for Christians, it's the time of year that we celebrate Jesus' birth. We celebrate this amazing act of God taking on human flesh to dwell with us and teach us and save us. And most of us here today, right, most Christians even, have a developed enough theology to know that Jesus came on a rescue mission. He was born as a man to ultimately die as a man in order to pay the price for our sins. And in doing so, he rescues all who believe in him from sin and death and hell. This was Jesus' ultimate mission. But in doing so, he had additional missions as well. He had other purposes that he needed to fulfill when he was here. And one of those is that he was going to be a fixer. Because just like we had done with creation, humanity had taken the things of God, things of spirituality and religion, and we had broken them. By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, ideas of spirituality and faith in God were so distorted and messed up that truth was almost impossible to see. And so Jesus came to take a sledgehammer to all of it. And we've been going through the book of John as a church since last fall. And thus far we've had all the main characters introduced to us. We've seen the fascinating stories of John the Baptist and Nicodemus and the woman at the well. And today we start John 5 and it marks a turning point in the book of John. John 5 is where Jesus takes the sledgehammer out. Remember, if you were here, back in John chapter 2, at that wedding, when Jesus, when Mary asked Jesus to fix the mess at a wedding by doing something miraculous, do you remember what Jesus said to her? He said, woman, it's not my time yet. It wasn't time for him to be out in public creating the stir. It wasn't time for him to draw attention to himself. It wasn't time yet for him to start really upsetting some people. Well, in John 5, it's time. In John 5, Jesus is going public and he's going to get confrontational and I love it I love it because we've lost the fullness of Jesus we've lost the fullness of who he is and the way that we talk about him and presume on him and dismiss him yeah it's true it's true ultimately that that you will not find anyone more merciful and patient and gracious and loving than Jesus but to zero in on those attributes of Christ alone is to miss out on the fullness of who he is For instance, when you read the Gospels, the only beings to recognize Jesus for who he is immediately are the demons. All throughout the book, right? And their first question to him is always, have you come to destroy us? Then Jesus, Jesus, this Jesus spoke and storm stilled. He, He spoke, illnesses fled. Just at the word of his mouth, death ran away. Right, this Jesus who gave his life on the cross while he was doing that had a crowd of thousands begging Pilate to kill him and cheered on his suffering. Does that sound like a pushover to you? Does that sound like somebody who never created any controversy and only just petted baby lambs all the time? Or does it sound like someone who was completely unafraid to stir the pot, to call out evil, or blow the whole thing up if need be? See, it's the same Jesus who said, let the little children come to me. It's the same Jesus who threw the, over the, temples in the, the tables in the temple and drove out people with a whip. Please do not just choose your favorite aspects of Jesus. Worship the fullness of him. And in John 5, we will see that his displays of righteous anger and zeal were never without purpose. In fact, there was always a meaning of grace behind them. But to understand the miracle that we're going to read today, understand the scene around it that, that, uh, that Seth read for you, we need to make sure you have a quick refresher on how we got to this point because John's readers would have had this background. Okay, the Old Testament is the story of, how God, of God and how he worked in the lives of the people, mainly in the lives of the people of Israel. The early in the Old Testament, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we see God call a man named Abram. And he told Abram that he would have descendants as numerous as, numerous as the stars in the sky. 
And that from that many descendants would come one who would bless all the peoples of the earth. And this began God's gracious covenant relationship with the people of Israel. That God set apart the Israelites as his own chosen people. He then established them as a nation. He gave them his law to preserve their holiness. He offered them blessing after blessing after blessing if they would just stay faithful to him. And ultimately, all this had a much bigger goal. And God stated that goal when he first called Abraham. Because everything that God did in the lives of the people of Israel was about Jesus. It was all to prepare them for Jesus. It was all designed to foreshadow what Jesus was going to do. It was all to point them and to point us ultimately to Jesus. Every single sacrifice in the Old Testament law was a shadow of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. All the prophets that God raised up were given messages that foretold Jesus' birth, his life, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, and more. Think about it. Even in delivering them from the angel of death in Egypt, God had them put the blood of a lamb on a doorpost. And he said that anyone with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost would be spared from death. By the way, when Jesus, who was called the lamb of God, was on the cross, he was on the cross at the exact time that the Passover lamb was to be slain to remember that night in Egypt. God couldn't have made it clearer for them. Every single thing that God has ever done in creation has been about Jesus. Yet when he came, Jesus did not come to a faithful Israel. Do you remember what we read back in John 1? He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So what was the problem? Well, the Israelites had never really been faithful. But in the generations leading up to Christ's birth, they had taken on a whole new form. What had happened in those years is that the religious leaders of Israel had come to enjoy more civil power and influence than they ever had before under Roman leadership. And so what occurred is that those charged with representing God before his people and teaching them about him had traded in faithfulness for prominence. Now the religious leaders of Israel no longer answered to God. They answered to Rome and ultimately to themselves. Now the entire system of Judaism had become about the elite looking better than anyone else and preserving the power that they were enjoying. Listen, few things incurred the wrath of God more than misrepresenting him to his people. To use his name, to use his laws, to use his scriptures, to exalt yourself and not him, that simply will not end well for you. And so along came Jesus. And his motivations didn't align with theirs. He came to establish the kingdom of God. And he cared very little for their power and influence. In fact, he wanted to rid them of it. You're going to see Jesus say this phrase throughout the book of John. We already saw it in John 4. We're going to see it in John 5. It's going to continue out. Jesus says this, a time is coming and is in fact now here. And what Jesus is saying every time he uses that phrase is this, things are different now. The status quo is, is no longer staying. I'm changing everything because Jesus came to wage war. And in this war, first he had had a major mess to clean up. Religion had messed up people's views of God. And so his first battle will be against religion and those who use it for their own gain. And then he will buy his own church on the cross by waging war on our sin and defeating it. Because in order to establish his church, he needed to cleanse it in every way first. And you're going to see this in John. The very first public thing that Jesus does in the city of Jerusalem in John is John 2 when he clears out the temple. He's cleaning house. The second public thing that Jesus does in Jerusalem in the book of John is here in John 5. And what he's doing is simple. Don't miss it. He's picking a fight. He set the whole thing up. Let's look at it. Let's see how he does this. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. 
Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, or Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in, in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? So John tells us that Jesus goes with his disciples to Jerusalem for one of the festivals. doesn't tell us which one. Right? And I think he mentions that a festival was being observed so that you would know. The detail is this. You would know that Jerusalem would be a packed city. Right? It's full at this time. Now, in Jerusalem, there's a pool near the Sheep Gate, right? And the description of this pool may not mean much to you. It may just seem like filler. But I, I will tell you this. Archaeologists have since uncovered this pool, and everything they found is exactly how John describes it for you in John 5. I throw that in there to remind you of just how reliable the Bible is. It is true in everything it teaches, even to the tiniest detail. Now, there is some really fascinating, uh, there's something really fascinating about this pool. However, there's a tradition involved in it. There was this ancient tradition, right, that, that, that the Jewish people believed, and the belief was basically this, that from time to time, an angel would come and stir up the waters, and the first one in the pool gets healed. Now, John does little to prove or ridicule this theory. So if John didn't care, neither should I, right, which is why I won't spend a whole lot of time on it today, but I will say this, this goes against every single act of healing we see in the Bible, because healing is always an act of grace. It is often, not every time, but often in response to faith in God, but it's always an act of grace. It is not the heart of God to make people who are suffering and lame race each other into a pool to get grace. Now, my opinion aside, which is irrelevant, by the way, but this is what was believed. This is what they thought would happen. And so something, we have to admit this, something must have been happening at that pool because people kept waiting. They kept staying there. I just don't know what the origins of its power were. And a man, we're told, has been there laying near the pool and he's been crippled for 38 years. And so for who knows how long, most likely the majority of that time, he's been by this pool waiting for a miracle. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, waiting by the pool and he's still crippled. He still can't walk. Still has no victory. He's, nothing has changed. And so Jesus has a pretty good question for him. Do you want to get well? Right now, here's the thing. When we read this, right, we don't get the tone. Say, so this could be taken multiple ways. You could look at this question a couple different ways. As, as the guy saying, well, of course I want to get well. Why do you think I'm still here after all these years? Or you could take it like this. You've tried to find your answer in this pool for almost four decades, and it's never worked. Have you, I don't know, thought about trying something else? But this man, in answering Jesus, begins to just make excuses. Look at what he says in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me in the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I don't know enough people, he says. I know, nobody helps me. Tried and tried and I tried. Some, somebody's always faster. For 38 years I've tried. Do you see the picture? I want you to see the picture that John is painting for us. There's a deeper analogy he's setting up for you here. Because this man for decades has been within a few feet of the healing he desires. Think about the cruelty of this. He's close enough he can see it. He's close enough he can probably smell the water. He's almost close enough to touch it. Yet he remains just as broken and crippled as he was 38 years ago. See, one of the most demonic horrors of religion is how close it gets you. See, it deceives you. 
It brings you just enough experiences and feelings in your life that make you feel like you're getting closer to God. It gives you just enough of a taste of the real thing to make you want to keep coming back for more and more and more, yet you somehow never realize you're still starving. Let's be totally honest this morning. Let's not just bash religion. Everything other than Jesus does this. Pleasure, money, sex, possessions, success, fame, attention. What they do is they flash fulfillment in front of your face for just a few fleeting seconds, just long enough to make you want more. And so humans, throughout time, they chase these feelings. They chase that fulfillment again and again and again without ever realizing they're never fulfilled. I mean, think about it. He was right there. The pool was right there. He was devoted to it. He was committed. He'd been there for 38 years. He was right there, and he was still crippled. And his life only changed when Jesus showed up. You see, whatever it is that you're chasing, whatever it is that you worship, whatever it is that you find your identity in, whatever it is you believe in, if it's not Jesus, you're empty. And your God and your pursuit, whatever that thing is, it's flashing just enough fulfillment in front of you to deceive you and make you believe that one day, man, one day it's finally going to be enough. One day you'll have enough money, right? One day you'll finally have enough success. One day you're finally going to have that perfect body. One day you're finally going to experience enough pleasure. One day you'll, you'll finally have enough pain. One day finally enough people are going to admire you. One day, finally, you'll, you'll be religious enough, and you're going to experience peace, and all of it is a gigantic lie that leaves you beside the pool and just as crippled and empty as you've always been. See, it could be that Jesus asked this question, do you want to be well? Because most people don't even realize they're sick. And so what I want you to see this morning is the clear difference between 38 years of waiting, hoping, and trying, and thinking that maybe one day this will work, and one encounter with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. Now that is real power. That's not hoping and waiting and trying and effort and wishing. That is word. That's life. Get up, pick up your mat already and walk. And in an instant, the Bible tells us, everything the man had hoped for happens. That is Jesus. He's so much greater than all the counterfeits out there because he alone is God and he alone has the power. Listen, if you want your sins forgiven, if you want to experience eternal life in heaven, there's only one with the power to grant that, and that's Jesus Christ. If you want a power in your life that brings peace and fulfillment that is greater than what you're facing, there's only one with that kind of power, and that is not you. That's Jesus Christ. And if what you are trusting and what you're banking and what you're putting your faith in is anything other than Jesus, you are putting your faith in a counterfeit this morning. And it will, I won't tell you that it will never be good to you. I will tell you it will give you just enough good to blind you from the fact that you need so much more. Only Jesus breaks through. Only Jesus brings life. Only Jesus provides lasting peace. Only Jesus saves. Listen, there's, there's something about the second half of verse 9 that's interesting. John tells us that this man was healed at once and he picks up his mat and walks. And then he writes this. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. That sentence, by the way, sets up the entire rest of the chapter. Look at verse 10. And so... The Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. 
But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. I said, think back of this scene. This guy has just had his entire life changed. I mean, think of it. He's walking for the first time in 38 years. Think of the strut he had to have going. I mean, he's feeling it, right? And then come the party poopers. Have you ever noticed they're never joyous legalists? They don't exist. Right? This guy's having the day of his life. And like, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Well, first of all, it doesn't. Okay? The original Mosaic law that God gave the Israelites, you can read it. It's, it's in your Old Testament. There's nothing in there about that. The religious leaders of Israel wrote in 700 additional laws for who knows what reason, and a good portion of those focused on what you could and could not do in the Sabbath. And so here they are, they're protecting their own rule book. But I want you to notice what this man tells them. He says, listen to this sentence, the one who made me well told me to pick it up and walk. Now is it just me, or is there some part of that sentence that's more interesting than the rest? Right? The guy has just told you there's someone walking around Jerusalem, and he's healing crippled people. There's somebody who's got such an incredible amount of power. He's doing things that only Messiah was promised to do. Isaiah 35, Isaiah tells us that the Messiah would come and he would make the lame to leap like a deer. Now put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You're a religious leader of Israel. Your people have waited for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. You're talking to this man who's been crippled and he tells you there's a man in your midst who has healed him, who's made him well and he can walk again. And oh yeah, he told me to carry my mat. What do you think your question should be? Look what they ask in verse 12. Who is this fellow that healed you? No, that's not what they ask, is it? Who's this guy who told you to carry your mat on the Sabbath? Are you serious? How blind are they? They're so worked up and focused on keeping all their rules that they completely lost sight of the power that's right in their midst. But this response doesn't surprise Jesus at all. In fact, he's the one who facilitated it. When the man can't identify him, you know what Jesus does? This is a volume of, he goes to him in verse 14 and identifies himself to him. And he says, now stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Because you see, for Jesus, 38 years as a cripple is child's play to an eternity separate from God and hell. This man needed to place his faith in Jesus and have the ultimate healing. And in verse 15, the man he, he rushes right back to religious leaders and identifies that it was Jesus who told me to carry my mat. And thus the scene is set. And we're not going to get into this today because we don't have time. This is a great foreshadowing for next week. Come back, all right? But I want you to see how Jesus has set all this up. He's, he's orchestrated all this. He's like a movie director setting up a scene. Jesus is the one who went to Jerusalem during one of the Jewish festivals when it would be most crowded. Jesus waited until the Sabbath day, a day when the religious leaders would be on high alert. Jesus then goes to a pool where people are waiting on the miraculous, and he finds the man for whom this plan has failed every single time, and he heals the man, and then he ordered, he didn't have to, he ordered the man to carry his mat, knowing that this would bother the religious leaders, knowing that it would stir them up. Then when they can't find him, he doubles back and makes sure to identify himself to the man so that he can go tell the religious leaders. And now he waits because they're coming and they won't be happy. They're not going to be happy. They won't like that he's ignoring their rules. And guess what? He doesn't care. 
because they've built their entire lives around protecting this idea or notion of a power that they have. Only real power has now come into their midst and he will not be bullied by them. And he's not going to be pressured by them and he won't relent. And this will begin a war that will continue to his last move in the fight will to make them believe that they have won only on that cross. He will be destroying sin and any power that religion or self-promotion ever had. And it will be the blow that they never recover from. Because Jesus will remain undefeated. So next week, come back because they come and he's ready. But this week we need to ask this question. Since this is who Jesus is, since Jesus is the great power in the universe, how do we assure that he is working for us and not against us? Listen, as we go through this book, throughout John, you're going to see Jesus' power and authority on display and again and again. And for some, the unleashing of Jesus' power brings victory, it brings grace, it brings healing and forgiveness and joy and life change. And for others, it brings total shame and embarrassment and loss and defeat. And I'll be as clear with you as I can this morning. It's really not hard to figure out the difference. In fact, in James 4, we'll told it outright. That God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen, if you want the great power of the universe to stand and fight against you in 2017, then go ahead and puff your chest out. Go ahead and make life about you. Go ahead and say that your experiences matter more than God's word and his authority and other people's experiences. Go ahead and try to be your own master. But if you want the gracious goodness of Jesus' power unleashed on your life and on your marriage and on your family and on your struggle with sin and your walk with him, then walk humbly with your God. Love him first, love others second and yourself last, which just means this. It means it can't be about you. I mean, you want to make some kind of resolutions, you want a life motto, whatever you want to call it for 2017, it needs to be this. It's not about you, it's all about him. And this changes every aspect of your life. Did you know your marriage is not about you? Are you really good at keeping score? Are you really efficient of, of, of pointing out your spouse's flaws and keeping track of everything they've done wrong? Are you really quick to just tell others how it's, it's all her fault, it's all his fault? I mean, you aren't walking in humility. You're living in a consistent, pathetic, childish state. And if you want God to change your marriage, then you need to become a servant. You need to be the first person to praise your spouse. You need to be the first person to forget their faults. You need to, be the first, you need to become an expert in what they're good at. You need to serve them and just watch what he does in your midst. Parents, did you know your kids aren't about you? So if you're engaging in mommy wars, if you're somehow comparing your family to another family and seeing how you stack up, man, I'm telling you what, God will oppose you in that. In fact, if you're living vicariously through your children, right, you're making them pursue every athletic or academic dream that you failed at, that is the most prideful way to parent there is. It's not, it's not about you. It's also not about them. And so to usher your family from hotel to hotel to hotel, chasing every weekend sports tournament because you know your little athlete's going to be make it big, is doing them and you no favors. There needs to be one 
person on the throne in your home, and that is Jesus. We parent, where we parent for Jesus, we point our kids to him, we admit when we're wrong, we ask forgiveness, we forgive our kids and show them patience when they're wrong, because that's what we find in Jesus. We set up our calendar and our schedule and our family life around the idea that, that Jesus is the most important. And as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. And when we do this humbly before him, he moves in our midst. This applies to all your relationships. Do you know your friendships are not merely relationships that are be used to get you something or elevate your position? I'll just ask you this. Do, are you friends with anyone in your life who could never benefit you socially or materialistically? You even have a friendship like that. Friendships are like all relationships. They're designed to bring us joy and are utilized so that all involved get more of Jesus in some way. Your career, it's not about you. It's not about your next promotion. It's not about always moving up. It's not, not, it's not about your next stop. When God does those things, praise his name and receive them gratefully. But it's not about them. Instead, your career is an opportunity that God has given you to work as if you're working for him. And here's a little secret. There are going to be people in your midst at your job who are there for your own personal growth, which means they will bother you. There will also be people there so that you can point them to Christ. They'll probably be the same people. Listen, your money is not just to be used for you. It wasn't given to you by God just for your own benefit. It's yet another avenue through which you can worship Christ by using it, using it to build his kingdom to help others. Your ministry, and I hate using that word, your service to the church, it's not about you. In fact, we should probably just stop calling it your ministry. Because it belongs to Christ. And if he's trusted you with an opportunity to serve him in this place, in this, in this season, make sure the focus is always on him and never about you. Because ultimately, your life is simply not about you. In the scheme of everything, all our lives are really short. We, we don't get many days on this earth. And so we can do one of two things with it. We can build our name. We can build our kingdom. We can build our worth. We can pursue everything that we want to pursue selfishly. As much, Just get as much as we can get in this short life. We can make it all about us and look out for ourselves and be all about self-promotion and self-exaltation. Many have tried it before us and a whole lot are going to try it after us. But just so you know, if you do, then Jesus will stand against you. He will oppose you. And all your efforts will eventually fail. Or we can joyously and willingly join in the mission of heaven since time began. The mission of us laying down our lives, laying down our marriages, laying down our families and our careers and our possessions and our resources, all at the feet of Jesus and committing that wherever we go, whatever it is we do, whatever he brings us in this life, we're going to use it to make much of Jesus and to build his kingdom. And in walking in that humility, we will unleash the greatest power in the universe for us and on our side. Listen, ultimately, everything is about Jesus. So we can fight against that and lose, or we can submit to that joyfully and discover what real victory is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the, the many examples were given in scripture, the good and the bad. 
Lord, I'm grateful for the example of these religious leaders of Israel. Their story won't be pretty to watch. It won't be easy to watch. In fact, it'll be downright difficult. But God, I thank you that you painted such a clear picture to show us what happens when we live for self. We set up our lives to serve us. When we set up our relationships to serve us. When we use people in our lives to serve us, what happens is we fail every time. So God, make me a person, make FBN a church of a group of people who just want to make much of Jesus. May this be the year that we go low, Lord. May this be the year that we walk in humility before you, and wherever you take us, we will use that to showcase your glory. God, I'm thankful that we get to come to your table now. That what a better reminder of an act of humility than remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so as we come, as we take of this meal, Lord, I pray that we around this room repent to you in humility. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's not really a better way to start uh, 2017 than to do it at the table uh, as a family, uh, as an individual, as a body, uh, to have this time together. Um, there's a passage in Second Chronicles that's just been on my mind, uh, given everything. Uh, God says to his people, he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their, uh, forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And uh, um, this has been kind of my guide, and, and I encourage you as well. First Corinthians tells us that when we come to the table, uh, to examine ourselves before we do that. And we need to ask ourselves these questions. How are we seeking him? How are we living humbly before him? Um, to ask those questions, to examine ourselves before him as we come to the table. So this is your time. What's going to happen is we're just going to start playing a song. Uh, we have a table here, a table in the back. Uh, as you feel led, just come up to the table, uh, grab a cup, uh, grab a piece of bread, and then you can go back to your seat, uh, and you can do as much examining as you need to uh, before you uh, take of the elements and this is something that we do because Jesus did what he did for us. Uh, I know there's a lot of people in here who are going through a lot of stuff. Um, and that doesn't excuse us from having these personal moments of uh, examination. So I encourage you to, uh, to take part in that during this time.